Mr. President, uh, multiple sources are telling Fox News today that the United States government now has high confidence that while the coronavirus is a naturally occurring virus, it emanated from a virology lab in Wuhan. A group of highly qualified evolutionary virologists look at the sequences there and the sequences in uh, bats as they evolve. And the mutations that it took to get to the point where it is now is totally consistent with a jump of a species from an animal to a human. Our agricultural production is expanding. Our food industries are changing to meet the demands for the global food supply. And how that relates to wildlife and biodiversity is that we once again are coming in more contact than we've done for the last two or 3,000 years of human history. Um, as we expand our frontiers, we're exposed to more of these viruses that are out there in nature. Are they increasing? They are. That trend line uh, over the last 40 years just continues to go up. It is not plateauing off. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Jim Greenwood, and you're listening to I Am Bio. Did patient zero contract COVID-19 from eating an undercooked bat? Did China study the novel coronavirus in a Wuhan lab and fail to tell the world? The answer to both of these questions is likely yes, yet neither really speaks to the deeper, disturbing truth about the pandemic's origin. COVID is simply the latest zoonotic disease outbreak caused by a demonstrable spike in viruses jumping from animals to people over the last four decades. The reasons for this trend have been carefully studied and empirically validated. It's the way human beings are living in the modern age, the speed at which our population is growing, the frequency with which we're disturbing natural habitats, and the disregard we're showing for wild animals not meant to be captured, caged, and eaten. COVID could be just the tip of the iceberg in a new infectious era. If humanity doesn't wake up to the gravity of this threat, and resolve to change our ways. My guest today is Dr. William B. Koresh. He's the Executive Vice President of Health and Policy at the EcoHealth Alliance that works at the intersection of human health, animal health, and the environment. He's also the President of the Working Group on Wildlife of the World Organization for Animal Health, and he is Co-Chair of the International Union of Nature Conservation's Wildlife Health Specialist Group, and he's on the WHO's roster of experts for zoonotic diseases. So I guess, Dr. Koresh, we can assume you know what you're talking about. Thanks for being with us. <laughs> well, thanks for inviting me to be on board, and hopefully I'll, know, I'll do my best in knowing what I'm talking about. Well, you and I know we, we have worked together for the last uh, five or six years on the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. And you have been of enormous um, help 
to uh, the commission in informing us about the intersection of humans and animals and disease. So let's start here. What is the common mission of all of these groups on which you serve? Well, I think really what we've seen over the years is this uh, coalescence of emerging infectious diseases, the majority of which, 75%, are linked back to animals and particularly wildlife. The vast majority are related to wildlife, these emerging human diseases. We can call them zoonotic, meaning they move between animals and people. Um, but when we look at emerging infectious diseases, these new, new diseases or old diseases popping up in new places, they seem to be the highly linked with wildlife. Doesn't mean they always come exactly from wildlife, but it's often what we as people are doing to disturb their habitats or something we're doing with those animals, and the viruses kind of make the jump between animals and people. And historically, there's, there's been a lot of uh, transmission of viruses from, from livestock, people who literally lived in their houses with their, with their chickens and their pigs and lived very closely to um, their cows and, and so forth. And there's a lot of transmission of, of viruses from one to another under those settings, right? That's correct. And including and bacterial diseases and occasionally even a, a odd fungal disease. But we have been working, you know, with livestock and we domesticated animals five to 10,000 years ago. So human and contact with livestock has been relatively unchanged. I mean, there's been a big growth in recent times with human populations. But let's say for 5,000 years, we've had the opportunity to share our bacteria and viruses uh, from animals to people, but also from people to animals. There's a lot of questions about did tuberculosis, a human disease that became a bovine, a cow disease, or vice versa. So we've had that time. And what's newer, what's more modern, is as the human population has grown and we've moved more into wild places and developed more land, the new stuff tends to be this wildlife. So I'd say if we were having this conversation a thousand years ago, we would have been talking about emerging diseases from livestock. Fast forward to present time, we already know about those diseases. They aren't new. They're not so scary. We kind of know how to control them. The new ones seem to be coming from wildlife. So I have learned that there's a thing called the human microbiome, which is the collection of all of the bacteria in a normal healthy human body. And we walk around with something like 40 trillion bacteria in our bodies. In fact, uh, we, we actually contain more bacteria cells than human cells. And I heard it said that um, if a visitor from another galaxy could come here and study human beings, he might describe them as the device evolved by bacteria for transporting themselves, <laughs> but, <laughs> which is not completely untrue. Exactly. It's true. very true. So there's, But there's also the global virome, the total collection of viruses in all living things on the planet that don't produce disease. So tell me about that. Yes. So it is very, that's a great analogy with the human microbiome. So we, we play a role in that also. If we look at the number of viruses that are carried in humans around the world, it's probably 20 or 30 or 40, maybe 100 um, at any given time, point in time. And then for animals, it's exactly the same thing for every species of animal, but plants have their viruses. Um, 
even you know viruses first evolved to attack bacteria. So we have viruses that kill bacteria and others that you know attach to plants and fish and every, pretty much every living thing has a, a host of viruses, some of which cause disease, but other like the human microbiome, uh, others that just live in us or on us or in animals um, and do serve some purpose. And we are so far away with understanding what that purpose might be. But some of those, just like our microbiome with our bacteria, they might protect us from other bacteria invading and causing disease. They might, you know, have a, a little, their own little bio-warfare going on where they're protecting, and we take care of those bacteria in our GI tract or on our skin, and, and in return, they fight off more dangerous things. The same so with I take, these- I take my bi- microbiotic pill every morning, uh, whether I should or shouldn't, but in any case, it's obvious evidence that I need some level of, of bacteria in my gut that's good for me. But uh, are you saying that there are viruses that are also in my body that are actually either benign or helpful to me? Yes, exactly. Well, what um, are some examples of that? Well, you know, we don't, it's interesting that the medical world has never looked very closely because they don't cause disease. Um, uh-huh. And we've now been doing that with animals, and we are finding thousands of new viruses uh, that were never described before because they don't seem to cause disease in animals, so who would have bothered to look? Um, And so particularly around this new coronavirus, we've been looking at bats, and we are finding thousands of coronaviruses in bats. They don't appear to cause any disease. They must serve some role, and they may protect bats from other viruses that are dangerous. They may serve some role in stimulating or immunomodulation, modulating their immune system. We don't really understand those things. We just know that now that we've started to look, we're finding them. Mm, Interesting. And so the problem, of course, is that when they jump from non-human, these viruses jump from non-human animals to humans, um, that's, they often cause these zoonotic diseases. And how exactly does that happen? That happens through some form of contact uh, between us and those animals. And I must say, it flows both ways. So we have known for years that uh, the herpes simplex virus, just the common virus that causes a cold sore in humans, if that gets into some types of monkeys, like owl monkeys or spider monkeys, they drop dead. So a virus that doesn't really affect us much, very mild, it gets into one of them, it causes fatal disease. There's another herpes virus that's found in macaques called herpes B. For them, it causes a little cold sore and then goes away. Of course, they carry it for their life. If that virus gets into a human, it kills a human. So what we're seeing is these viruses over eons of time have adapted with their host, and we have a relationship where they live on us and they don't cause much problem. But when it goes into a new mammal host or new host, um, it wreaks havoc. And it's because there's no natural uh, compatibility that's been evolved over time. And are humans, because we are mammals, more likely to be at risk from viruses in other mammals, or are we endangered by viruses in birds or reptiles or other species? That, well, you know, it's hard to make an all or nothing comparison, but we have, we've built a database at EcoHealth Alliance with, I think it's 2,700 or 2,750 
host virus interactions and of those and looked at which ones are, include a human and which ones are animals. And the, the, real, the big majority of those are between humans and mammals because genetically we're more related. And when we dig down a little closer, it's humans and bats, humans and non-human primates, and humans and rodents. And genetically, we're more, surprisingly, we're more closely related to bats than we are to a lot of other mammals, except primates. Of course, non-human primates and, and human primates are the closest on the phylogenetic branches of the tree. Um, but bats are pretty close, too. And so for those groups of animals, we can share our viruses uh, more closely. The big outlier in all of that, which always overwhelms the system when you do comparisons, is influenza A viruses. And that's where we really match up with birds. That's a natural avian virus, tends to not normally cause disease in nature, um, but they carry that virus. Uh, when it gets into other mammals, it causes disease. Even sea seals and sea lions will die of it. And of course, we know the story in humans with pandemic influenzas. So we know that um, if, if you get bitten by at least certain kinds of bats, you can get rabies as well as from other animals, dogs, foxes, skunks, I think. Correct. Um, but, that's, and, but that's not the only way that, that, the, that the virus is. Rabies is, is rabies a virus? Yes, it's a okay. rhabdovirus, the family right, okay. of... Rabies viruses. I thought so. So, but, so that that's not the only way um, t that a virus can be transmitted from a bat to a human. It doesn't have to bite us. Is that right? Or is it that we bite them? Is that the problem? <laughs> yes. It, and especially if you you start to eat them and they're undercooked. There's a little joke, you know, like uh, well, the standard joke now is um, if you don't believe one person can change the world, uh, try eating an undercooked bat. Mm -hmm. um, so, meaning that that bat virus will start the next pandemic, which I might always, be... I always use my meat thermometer when cooking bats. Yeah, yeah. good, excellent. <laughs> so, do do we know that the coronavirus that's created this horrific pandemic? Do we know that it came from a bat in China? There's a lot of speculation about that now. Yes, what we do know is, in when we've been looking at bats um, around the world and then particularly in southern China, China, and into Southeast Asia. Um, we have found, just in that region, we've found about 500 new coronaviruses never known to humankind. Um, you know, previous to this work, maybe 100 or 200 coronaviruses are ever identified in human history. So now that we're looking, and we are finding hundreds of coronaviruses in those bats, and the same in South America, and the same in Africa, in the, Asia, in the African continent. Um, so what we know is these viruses are circulating. And then there's a subset of those viruses that are related to SARS, and this one is called SAR, you know, coronavirus SARS-2. So these SARS-related coronaviruses, there's a cluster of those, once again, on that genetic tree. They're kind of out on the same branch. And we've found 50 or so of those in uh, southern China and that the range of those bats, there's 10 or 15 different types of bats that we found this virus in. 
And the range of those bats are out through Southeast Asia, over into South Asia, uh, and up into China. So there's a, quite a range, geographic range, where these bats live. And we've actually been testing people, humans, with serology to see if they have antibodies, an immune response against this group of viruses. And we're finding between a half and 3% of all the people we test, that, that works out to about, if you extrapolate to the region, that would be 10 to 20 million people already have antibodies to this group of viruses that are found in bats. So this has been going on for quite a while. So this circulation of these viruses and getting into humans has been going on for quite some time. And in the work we've done, this was actually two years ago. So there's a sense that these bat viruses are getting into, into people all the time. I think what happens is most of them are dead ends. They just don't go anywhere. Maybe they infect a few people or one person doesn't cause illness. We're seeing now with COVID-19, lots of people are uh, infected with it and don't show signs of illness. So these related coronaviruses could be doing the same things. Or people get a mild cold. You know, two of the um, two of our common cold viruses that are coronaviruses um, came, looks like they came from bats in the 1700s or the early 1800s and became human viruses. So they just, you know, we, this is a natural thing that we exchange viruses in our environment and we pick them up and some of those viruses adapt uh, to work, to living in new species. From the very beginning, we were told uh, that this virus came from the so-called wet market in Wuhan, the, uh, the wildlife market. And, um, but it's not certain in my mind, does that mean that it was because someone sold a bat at that market and and someone else took it home and undercooked it and ate it and got the virus and began to spread it? Or was it potentially someone just had the virus and happened to go into that market and it spread from there? Well, I think right in the beginning, we all were guessing the former was true. And there were pictures that came from that market and there were animals in that market. So and we've seen this enough time. We know Ebola comes from bats and gets into humans either directly or through uh, non-human primates and people get it. Uh, we've seen SARS, that virus, the original SARS looks like it was a bat virus and maybe went through another wild animal like a civet in a market. So it was a safe assumption. Now that we know a little more and we're getting more information, it's starting to look like the latter conclusion. Uh, at least to me, because it looks like there were at least one human case diagnosed prior to the cluster at the market. Uh, so that starts to tell me that maybe there was a human, a vendor, maybe a whole vendor's family. If you've been in these uh, kind of big open public markets, there might be a vendor in their family and they have a, a table there and they have lots of products they're selling or meat or fish or something. And if they were sick at the time and coughing, on their countertop for the whole afternoon, they could have been dozens and dozens of people infected just by coming there and picking up something to buy it or touching something and then touching their face. So now I'm starting to think more about the latter. And when we look at the how many people in Southern China that might commute to Wuhan to work, um, it could very possibly be that somebody brought that virus that was sick and came with that and a, that a virus had adapted in humans and came to Wuhan and started spreading around there. 
So I remember when you testified at the Bipartisan Commission a few years ago, you were talking about the underlying causes of these emerging infectious diseases. And you said that we would continue to see more of them. So why, why is, is the frequency of these zoonotic diseases increasing? And if, if it is, why? Yes. Well, the answer to the second question, uh, are they increasing? They are. That trend line uh, over the last 40 years just continues to go up. It is not plateauing off. And the reason why is because the drivers of disease emergence or the risk factors, you might say, for disease emergence are these activities that we're doing. And when you look over the last 50 years of all these disease events, these emerging disease events, um, if you look at where they're taking place and what's going on behind them, what we see is uh, changes in land use, what's going on with forestry or converting land to pasture. Uh, these, that's the biggest association we see with disease emergence. The second is changes in agricultural industry practices. A third is food industry, uh, actually food production techniques. Um, another one is medical industry uh, practices. So those things are increasing now. As we, you know, every year we're doing more of that. Our agricultural production is expanding. Our food industries are changing to meet the demands for the global food supply. So those are basically turn into the risk factors. And how that relates to wildlife and biodiversity is that we, once again, are coming in more contact than we've done for the last two or 3,000 years of human history. Um, as we expand our frontiers, we're exposed to more of these viruses that are out there in nature. So Jane Goodall said, quote, it is our disregard for nature and our disrespect of the animals we should share the planet with that has caused this pandemic. And that was predicted a long time ago. Do you agree with that statement? She was prescient. And it's a little interesting, and it's kind of a little anthropocentric, but I think it hits the nail on the head. Let's go back to bats again for a minute, because uh, you talked about, about uh, eating bats, but that's, you know, most people are f afraid of bats. But there are places where uh, people in bats actually interact fairly frequently, right? That's correct. And I think, you know, as, as we society start to urbanize more, the closer you are to the city, the less contact you probably tend to have with bats. But people that live in rural areas, you, they, you notice there's bats roosting up in the eaves of the barn or the shed someplace, or there might be a bat cave somewhere nearby and you notice at night they're flying out. So there is just some natural exposure, especially if it's to urine or feces as they're flying by. There's always a little bit of exposure that way. Then we do have many cultures around the world that actually eat bats. Um, and so they will hunt them and eat them. Uh, so there's a, a risk exposure too. Uh, in other places, people uh, go, you know, we do, we call it spelunking in the U.S. You go, you know, there's cavers. Of course, in the cave, there's bats. So cavers certainly need to be a lot more careful about being exposed to bat urine or feces or, um, or even aerosols from bats, if there are a lot of bats. In Asia, a lot of people, there's uh, cave tourism, and people like to go into big caves. They're beautiful. It just so happens that bats are living in those caves. And so there's a route for exposure. So there's tourism in caves. 
around the world. And also people mine the bat guano and use it for fertilizer. That's a very large industry in many parts of the world. So people will go in with shovels and no other protective gear and harvest bat guano and take it outside and dry it and then put it on their crops. The risk, of course, is before it's dried when it's still fresh. So you have thousands, hundreds and thousands of people kind of involved in that industry around the world. Well, it's interesting. It can go both ways because uh, I live in in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and we have a a large cave here that had a population of brown bats in the, I think, at least 10,000 bats there. And some spelunkers went in there and left some kind of virus or bacteria behind. They gave the bats this, um, I think they call it white nose disease or something like that. And it basically wiped out the entire population of bats in that cave. Yeah, that white nose situation, very interesting. And that's a fungal disease. When it, it, it came into New England first, and now it's spread all the way to the West Coast. And there's up to 90% mortality in bat, in bat, home, bat colonies and bat caves. Well, now we've looked back and found that that was a fungus that lives in Europe, and it doesn't make European bats sick. So mm-hmm. someone introduced that to the United States, that virus, and not, excuse me, that fungus, and our bats are not immune to it or resistant to it. So it has been decimating bats across North America. And people kind of go like, oh, what's the big deal? But we've done some economic work, just the agricultural impact. The estimates are between 2 and $3 billion a year in pesticide use to meet the same thing that bats do in agricultural lands in the Midwest, U.S., so bats wow. are out at night, they eat agricultural pests. And to compensate for that will be a huge burden on farmers now to spend extra money on pesticides to replace what bats used to do for free. Well, I have a, a barn on my property that's, uh, gosh, almost 200 years old. And it um, it was filled with bats and their guano. And uh, we didn't mind any of that because they come out at night and they eat the mosquitoes. We live on the on the river, and so it's a, a place where you, it's, it's a lot of wetland. Um, but then we converted the the barn into a residence for our, our son and and daughter and long grandson, and uh, we had to get, have the bats removed, obviously, and that was that was quite a task. So um, I understand the, the 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 value though though of those of those bats and eating insects. Yeah, it's quite remarkable, and if you go into the tropics, the whole tropical belt around the world, um, the not the insect-eating bats, but the fruit-eating bats and the pollinating bats, they account for about half of all tree species in forest. Hmm. So when we talk about forestry, if you want to have sustainable forestry and be able to log and collect timber, you, that's totally dependent on bats for pollination. You know, half of the species of trees require bats for either pollination or for seed dispersal. And then even tequila is pollinated by bats down in Mexico, the mezcal plants. Huh. Well, I also remember when you, you testified at the Bipartisan Commission, you showed photographs of all kinds of dead exotic animals that had been shipped by airplane to the U.S. Uh, from all over the world and intercepted by customs. Um, and I guess that has to do with people from other cultures, countries who come here and they're they're missing their local exotic or local wild animals and have them shipped over. Is that um, is there significant risk from that phenomenon? 
Yeah, it's a, a remarkably large scale. The U.S. is the largest importer of wildlife and wildlife products on record. We have the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. The, what's declared legally um, is about 250 million animals a year come in legally. And we don't even have an idea about the illegal. We're just guessing it's probably about the same. And Fish and Wildlife, you know, tries their best to keep up with that as much as they can. We were working at the port of entry, actually at the mail sort facility where the mail comes in in New York at JFK and working with CDC and Fish and Wildlife and, and then um, Customs Border Patrol. And just for four hours, once a month, we would um, run a, every box in the mail just for four hours, run it through you know, run it through a radiograph x-ray machine there and then open them up. And we'd find 100, 150 uh, packages of people smuggling in wildlife illegally, not declared, just in four hours, once a month. And, and so what, you what can, kind of wildlife? Oh, there was like chimpanzee heads, there were bats, there were uh, monkey hands and legs. There was a lot of, a lot of big rodents, these pouch rats, which have monkey pox. Um, a lot of people bring those in. So some of it's for food, some of it's for, you know, magic. Some things are collectors. One box had like 200 dried mounted bats and little plastic cellophane. They were going to go to somebody in Omaha, Nebraska was where it was going. Some collector, you know, likes dried bats, you know, and they probably show up at a swap meet, you know, for I'd use them for decorative purposes. Now, those... <laughs> Those dried out ones, you know, aren't very risky. There's not too many diseases. But some of the meat was still, like, bloody, you know, like smoked on the outside uh, and creamy on the inside. You kind of like Oreo cookie. When you cut into them, blood would run out. And we isolated lots of viruses. Uh, we sent them to a lab, and we're finding all these different RNA viruses. Mm-hmm. So we talked about domestic livestock and how we've humans have cohabitated, so to speak, with them for thousands of years. But when it comes to these emerging infectious disease, are our domestic livestock and even our pets at risk from these viruses? Because we just saw that the, there was a there was a, a tiger in New York that that uh, got the coronavirus, right? Yes, and luckily, with uh, it appears that cats do not get very sick from this particular virus, uh, so that's good news. And dogs seem to pick it up and also do not seem to get sick, um, and they both seem to clear the infection. Um, so there is a risk. Um, I'm not so worried about this particular one. Um, it's already been looked at to see if it can infect chickens or turkeys or pigs, and it doesn't look like it can. Uh, so boy, aren't we lucky on this one, COVID-19. But there are so many known uh, viral diseases around the world that we do not have in North American livestock right now. And that's a big issue for USDA, and that's why for many years, you, when you come into the country, you always have to check a box. Have you been on a farm? Have you been with animals? And, and USDA depends on the general public being honest. Um, and I think so far, so good, knock on wood, we haven't had just normal, common, um, exotic foreign diseases like foot and mouth disease or rinderpest or Rift Valley fever have not made it North America, because once again, that would be a disastrous um, experience if one of those diseases got established here. So as you know, we put out, we started putting out our reports, the commission did in uh, 2015, and we've issued them since then. And uh, uh, tragically, um, so many of those recommendations 
were not adopted by the federal government, either by Congress or by the administrations. And, uh, and had they been, we would be in a far better place right now. But if you ruled the world, Dr. Koresh, what, what would be the list of things that you would do to reduce the threat of zoonotic diseases in the future? Well, there are quite a few. And I certainly think there's been some programs in the past um, that are at the U.S. government, federal level, that could certainly be um, enhanced or booted up. Uh, the Defense Department has an interesting program under Defense Threat uh, Reduction Agency called the Biological Threat Reduction Program. Um, they do remarkable work, like engaging with researchers around the world, foreign researchers on these emerging diseases and an both animal and human diseases. And they um, they require like a human uh, a counterpart from the Americas, like a, a science a scientist from the um, from the United States partnering with a foreign scientist, and you, you build a trusted relationship, and you know what's going on in their laboratories, and you communicate. That's a, and that started back, you know, with nuclear threat reduction. Uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, they started investing that and expanded. That program could be a lot bigger. Uh, NIH now has these collaborating research centers. They're just in their infancy around the world. Those give us insights because we can't... Um, the government can't do everything, and you, certainly members of your organization understand that. There is a role for us in the private sector, whether that's academia or, or um, the for-profit business sector, doesn't really matter, to have that kind of U.S. outreach and demonstrate leadership and demonstrate our willingness to collaborate around the world so we know what's going on. I think that would be a big step uh, forward. And then protecting our borders, that's a two-part thing. One is knowing what's going on in other countries. That always helps before it jumps across the transom and into our boat. And then also border protection and border security. And so when I talked about all those shipments coming in, we don't, we don't invest nearly enough in border security, border checks for packages, animals coming in, people testing some of that. That could work. And then finally, I would say that investment in the private sector for um, improving diagnostics that can be used for a wider range, not just the what we know about, but actually uh, having some uh, reliable ways to detect some things that we don't might not know about yet, like this COVID-19, or maybe it would have been good to have a coronavirus-type test. Uh, and also, you know, getting... We talked a lot about, you know, building new platforms for both vaccine and therapeutic development so it's faster. And I guess if there's some silver lining right now out of this current situation is some of those recommendations we're making and coming from the commission, you know, now seem to be being taken very seriously at FDA and other branches of government. Well, we always warned that um, we'd be better if the government, uh, instead of using following the usual practice of locking the, the barn doors after the horses were gone, might lock them uh, ahead of time, but that didn't exactly happen. We at Bio have a program we call One Health, which I know you're very familiar with that term. It's we, where we focus on the intersection of human health and animal health and agriculture products and, and, and practices. And I think that's clearly um, the, the future of 
much of what we do in biotechnology is to understand all of those intersections as you so well do. So I want to thank you um, not only for, for joining me for this interview today, but also for the work you do. It's, it's critically important. It's, it's really not very well understood, if at all even uh, fathomed by, by most people. And I'm sure there aren't a lot of people doing what you're doing. So we're depending upon you and your handful of, of uh, colleagues and comrades who are trying to protect us and keep us safe from, from these emerging infectious diseases coming from animals. And so thank you for doing that. Okay, well, thank you for having me. And I would turn that around, too. And I would say you and particularly your members in bio, I mean, for that, we couldn't do any of that without their work to advance the technology that we all depend on and we use every day in our work. Amen. Well, thanks again. Okay, sir. Thank you. 57 years ago, President Kennedy gave a famous speech at American University about the kind of peace we should seek and our responsibility to the planet and to each other. He reminded us that no problem of human destiny is beyond human beings to solve. And so today, in these troubled times, I leave you with his stirring reminder. And if we cannot end now our differences, at least we can help make the world safe for diversity. For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures. And we are all mortal. Well, that's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Or even better, if you've learned something useful, please share a link to the I Am Bio pod with your family and friends. To learn more about the work of heroes in lab coats, please visit IamBio.org. On our next episode, we're going to learn about an unlikely ally in scientists' effort to create human antibodies to protect us from COVID. The cow. That's right, a South Dakota biotech is using genetic engineering techniques to create super potent human antibodies produced by bovines with the help of their turbocharged immune systems. Only these cows don't produce monoclonal antibodies, they produce polyclonal human antibodies which could potentially provide much broader immunization against a rapidly mutating coronavirus. Could our animal friends help us beat back a deadly animal virus that's found its way into humans? Find out on the next episode of I Am Bio.